Welcome one and all to Last Stop Penn Station podcast featuring Carrie Silken and Ian Riccoboni. They dive deep into Carrie's wealth of stories and no subject is off limits. From the world of wrestling to his ticket agency, growing up in New Jersey, drug-fueled underground days, hustling in the French Quarter of New Orleans, and endless days and nights in New York City, every story is worth telling. It is Best in the World Weekend, Ring of Honor Wrestling, but it's also Last Up Station, Ian Riccoboni. I'm in hard sell mode because this is the weekend carry. Fans, Baltimore, the arena, Best in the World pay-per-view. I'm excited. I'm excited to be back live. When this episode drops on Friday, it'll be a mere 48 hours. About 36 hours-ish. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, in Baltimore, upcoming this Sunday, I finally got down the UMBC University of Maryland Baltimore <laughs> campus and they changed Chesapeake, the name on me. Chesapeake Bank Arena. Yeah. They got a great corporate sponsorship. We're, so we're happy. Our home away from home, the UMBC Arena. It's a great venue. Uh, I'd love to hear what a concert would sound like. It's got, it's got great acoustics for the wrestling, the way the, the mat sounds, the way the music sounds. Uh, they probably do have some killer concerts as the world is opening back up. But the world is opening up in Baltimore, and we can't wait to see you there. We had a great watch along. Uh, we had some killer matches. This weekend on TV, we have Violence Unlimited going against LFI, going against the Foundation, which is an appetizer for what we'll see at the pay-per-view, because we'll see Bruce defending the world title against Bandito, Jay Lethal and Brody King, EC3 and Flip Gordon, the Briscoes are there. You name it, you don't want to miss it. How about, I got one for you. Yeah. PCO and Dan Housen <laughs> right. against Beer City. <laughs> Beer City and Brian Mullen. A lot of tonnage in that match. Right. There's, there's three men over 350 pounds in that match, Gary. <laughs> One that claims he's 400. I'd like, you know, I, I like the housing. He's a nice boy, but I wouldn't mind seeing him. <laughs> do, you, do you remember? I, there, I think it was in Massachusetts where poor Nido got double smushed by Beer City yes. and Brian Maloney, the IWGP heavyweight champion, gets you got to get a the scraper and pull him off the map. Well, you could join us live in Baltimore or. We're available on Honor Club. Yeah, Honor Club. Fight TV. Fight TV's great. The good old, old fucking rush method. You know what? The good old <laughs> I'll say this. I, Honor Club is going to be great. Is a great value. It's nine ninety nine a month. You'll get the Philly shows if you sign up now. So we're coming to August. You know, you get a month's worth nine ninety nine. Do that if you can. It's the best way. Fight TV. If you have Honor Club, you can link through there. You can put it right through your TV to have the traditional experience and watch it on your big screen. <laughs> If you really want to give some some more people some extra money, I think it's $39.99 on pay-per-view. Don't want to discourage that, but just know that there's some cheaper options like Honor Club. And then you get the whole back catalog. You get to see what Kerry launched with Ring of Honor 2002, 2003, 2004. Now up one of the great achievements during the pandemic. Also, some great moments <laughs> from the from throughout Ring of Honor's history. So, <laughs> probably when they're listening to greatest achievements during the pandemic, um, the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccination, Moderna's number two. They figured that. They figured out about the vaccine. <laughs> In Wuhan. <laughs> and they also just wanted to stop, stop uh, baseball pitchers from messing with the ball. Uh, police reform was good. The spider reforming spider check. And then and then number five, solid number five, was getting the 2002 honor club settled once and for all. It is good. It is good. And, Second to that 
is we have a special guest tonight. How can we forget Mike G, the famed Mike G, Mike Greenblatt, uh, Carrie's cousin who got him into wrestling, helped get him into music. Former ROH publicist from 2004 until 2011. Wow. Man at the Bell. Yeah. See him at the, I mean. Many great titles. I know off the top of my head, uh, Seth Rollins when Tyler Black wins the belt, he's there. Not to mention the uh, Samoa Joe Kabashi. Right. Yeah. So Mike G was a ties to Ring of Honor. Ring of Honor, of course, this weekend, best in the world. Mike G, who's been Ring of Honor through and through. But today we're gonna uh, on my questions. I got a lot of questions about Woodstock today, Carrie. So I don't I anticipate going in the music direction. Hey, he's been working on my autobiography. We've been working on it. So we'll see what's going on. So uh why don't we get to him? Yeah, let's take a listen now to our interview with Mike G. Hello, everyone. It is our great pleasure to welcome at this time the esteemed Mike G. Mike G, the author of Woodstock, Back to Yasker's Farm. Uh, what an incredible book, 50 years after Woodstock. And you are the author of Last Stop Penn Station, or at least the, uh, how would I frame this appropriately, the uh, co-conspirator of Last Stop Penn Station. The book the book? equivalent yeah. of this podcast. Yes. And we're looking forward to it because of the many stories you've heard here. There's so many more. And uh, that transcript, that transcript weighed about 20 pounds. How many folks have you have you uh, interviewed so far for the book? Uh, dozens, literally dozens. But unlike the podcast, where every story is worth telling in the book, every story is not worth telling. It's a different medium. And I've got to I've got to sandpaper it off. And 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 uh, get Carrie's rough edges a little more mass appeal uh, style, but uh, still, it's funny. It's if we irreverent. Left it up to, if we left it, it up to him, I'm it's lewd. One, I'm sucking one cock per page. <laughs> <laughs> uh, incorrect. Incorrect. <laughs> That's not true. And an occasion, and an occasional vagina. Well, I heard there was true. I heard there's even more peeperies. We got to get we got to get some interest in this book, Mike G. There's peeperies. There's the show world, and uh, no. yeah, but but more important, there's drug selling. There's no. ticket scalping, and the most important part, the last third of the book, changing the face of professional wrestling in America. You yes. put all you put them all together, and you're sitting next to them right now. It's incredible. And you've sat next to some incredible people yourself. You know, you've done the, the Woodstock book, uh, Back to Yasker's Farm. But Carrie told me a really interesting story. You once went to Asbury Park and you sat with my favorite artist of all time, Bruce Springsteen, and you spent the day with him. What is what is that like going through the, you know, you're an esteemed music journalist. What's it like sitting down next to somebody like Bruce Springsteen, like some of your uh, the more acclaimed artists. And I'm going to interrupt and I'm going to let Mike take over. It was on Bruce's 29th birthday, am I correct? Yeah. And, and Mike and his photographer, Bob, then working with the uh, East Coast rocker, the Aquarian, mm-hmm. uh, was sent. This is, what year? this is the height of Springsteen's. 1978. He had been on the cover of Time and Newsweek. He had just been through a three-year battle with his former manager where he wasn't allowed to tour or record. Darkness on the Edge of Town was waiting in the wings. And he had a big press party in New York City for the album that was due. And I was invited as editor of The Aquarian. So I buttonholed him. And I said, Bruce, you're the big New Jersey guy. I'm the big New Jersey editor. You've never interviewed with us. Did he know who you were? Yeah, he knew who I was, but he didn't realize that he never interviewed with the Aquarian. So he called his publicist over and he goes, Glenn, I got to be, I got to interview with him. Glenn Brunman, the former publicist at Columbia Records goes, but Bruce, you're on a six month tour with only one day off and it's your birthday to boot. So no, you can't interview with this guy. And, and Bruce says, he takes me off in the corner. He goes, listen, you meet me to the, on the, on the boardwalk to the bench, on the bench to the left of the casino arena at two o'clock. I'll be there. Okay, so I got my photographer. We rolled down there. Two o'clock. We're waiting for Bruce. No Bruce. Three o'clock. No Bruce. I think maybe he's coming in disguise. Every, I, 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 everybody I saw is that Bruce. Is that Bruce? Uh, we 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 talked to some girls. Yeah, we're making waiting to meet Bruce Springsteen. Uh, and then 
Well, we we forgot about it. We figured it's a it's it's a blown day. Did you and have we were, a contact to his uh yeah his publicist or his manager? Or he did something? it without the publicist's knowledge, without the manager's knowledge. He just did it on oh, his own okay. because he never interviewed with the Aquarian, and he wanted to show some solidarity because we've been writing about him since before he was Bruce Springsteen. He was in Steel Mill. Right. When we wrote about him first. Uh, and and then we're, we're trying to light matches to, to smoke some cigarettes. We're hunched over the matches. It's windy. And there's a hovering presence behind me. Whoa, there he is. Three <laughs> hours late. And he apologized. And he said, I'm sorry, man. And he showed up in a borrowed burnt, you know, burnt orange Camaro. And we went for some coffee. And, uh, and then we went on a bumper cars. And then we did a little wrestling on the beach. And oh. then he took me, he took me to his, uh, oh, we played pinball. Uh, I beat him. And then uh, uh, he took me in the Camaro and he drove to the docks where his father labored on the loading docks. And he even, he even works in at a red light. And he even goes, this is called a quarterback sneak. And he blows the light. <laughs> and, and I couldn't believe it. And then we're on the highway and he's driving real fast. And I'm thinking, this is how Bruce Springsteen should be driving. And, and he goes, you got to hear these songs. And he puts on the animals song. We got to get out of this place. Yeah. And he said to me, every song I've ever written in my whole life was a rewrite of this song. Wow. So, you know, I hear, I hear that song now by the animals written by Carol King and Jerry Goffin uh, at, from the Brill building. Uh, I always remember that day, but he wouldn't let me tape him. Huh. And so I, I kept waking up in the middle of the night thinking of things he said and writing it down. And then when I went to proof the story in 78 in October, because for his birthday is September 29th, that was the day of the Bucky Dent home run to oh. beat the Boston Red Sox in a one-game playoff for the entire season. And I was so excited about getting the hell home and watching that game, I forgot to put my byline on the piece. And it was published without my byline. Wow. <laughs> well, the word got out because that article uh, is still heralded by the Springsteen freaks. Like, in, what was their, their that, Backstreet's that, magazine. Backstreet's, yeah. Right? yeah, they reprinted it. Bruce said I that, that December at the Capitol Theater backstage, he said it was his favorite article of any article that was ever written. Uh, about him. But then then we came to a bad falling out. Mm. And I'm persona non grata in the uh, Springsteen camp. What happened? Well, he, you know how he would like to go jam with bands, right? Well, the word got out that he was going to jam with the uh, Cats on a Smooth Surface, which featured mm. his friend Bobby Bandiera, who's yeah. now, uh, who was the lead guitarist of the Asbury Jukes. Yeah. Anyway, when word got out, he was going to jump on stage at the Soap Factory, uh, WDHA, the Rock of North Jersey, said it on the radio. Uh, and thousands of people showed up at the gig and they're booing the band and they're calling for Bruce. And he's peeking out at the, at, and they're throwing bottles because he didn't do it. He ain't doing that. And I had sent Bob Source that night and I said, to get, you better get a picture of Bruce or you're fired. He took the picture of Bruce. Bruce got so upset because this was the guy he spent his birthday with to invade his privacy like that. He took the camera, he smashed it on the ground, and then he kidnapped my photographer. He threw him in the back of the car and they went down route one or whatever it was. And he taught him a lesson in privacy and he kicked him out of the car uh, and on the highway. Amazing. <laughs> and the reason I'm persona non grata is because I dared call up his camp and ask for a quote about that. And uh, I never got one album or one invite to a concert. Uh, God forbid a ticket to his overpriced Broadway thing. Forget it. Uh, I can't get to first base with him anymore. Oh. That's my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say, so have you been around anything more exciting? I don't think anything could top that, though. Was, was, oh, okay. And again, <laughs> yeah. How about getting introduced to Bob Dylan by Keith Richards? Oh, Backstage wow. at the Lone Star Cafe, when my <laughs> client, I was a publicist, and Roy Buchanan was the artist. They asked Roy Buchanan to replace Brian Jones in the uh, in the uh, Rolling Stones. He said no, and and uh, it was on the eve of Live Aid in Philadelphia 
1985, and uh, Keith and Dylan, uh, Keith and and one of the, and one of the guy backed up Dylan that that day in Philadelphia. And I was talking to Keith Richards. He didn't want to talk to me, so he just said, "Here, here, meet Bob Dylan." And then I looked at I looked at Bob Dylan. I I I swear to you, Ian, I've met them all, and I never got flustered. But when I met Bob Dylan, instead of saying hello, I said, "Bob Dylan." <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. So when you're at something like that, how do you how do you maintain your composure? Because we I've talked to Carrie about going to going to Show World and and being with the bouncing beauties on the fourth floor and and how Carrie kept his composure. But if you're in there, you said Bobby Bandier. I'm a big Jukes fan. He's played he's played with Bon Jovi. He does his own thing now down at the shore. Right. I, if I met Bobby Bandiera, I'd be excited. But if you know, if you're meeting somebody of, of that esteem even higher, I mean, these are A-list guys. Do you go in expecting to meet them? It, this was kind of a spur of the moment situation with Bob Dylan. Uh, I guess what's the best interview you've lucked into? Well, uh, there was a uh, there there was an Eagles concert at Giant Stadium, and they had a press party in the bowels of the stadium. And uh, I went to the urinal and I noticed that uh, peeing next to me was Joe Walsh. Oh, and I'm like, and, and I, I had to get that scoop, man. And I started <laughs> interviewing him while we were both. <laughs> we were at the year, and he goes, man, I, I, don't be talking to me now. He ah. goes, but we are, we are having a press party in New York city tonight. So why don't you come to that? And he gave me all the details and so forth. And then that night, I apologized for being so obnoxious to ask him a question at the urinal. I mean, come on. That's that's how I met Jim Ross. No joke. I met Jim Ross <laughs> being next to him at the urinal. So surprised the people you meet in urinals these days. Yeah. I waited until we both were clear. I looked over and I, I kind of noticed it was him out of my periphery. Well, there's, there's a laundry list of celebrities Mike could talk about. I mean, here's a man you could throw a name out like Elton John. Elton John was having a party for his so-called retirement. He had, was going to retire from touring. John Lennon was still alive, living in the Dakota, hiding out, not doing much of anything. And uh, his table was roped off with a, with a silk curtain. And uh, I, had, I had to get a quote from Elton John, uh, but I wasn't allowed to. The publicist said he's not giving quotes. And I waited till the publicist left and I ducked under the curtain and slid on my knees right in front of him while he was having his uh, appetizer. And I stuck my tape recorder in his face and I started asking him some questions. He obviously thought that this guy has some balls. So he did. He gave me a, a 20 minute interview wow. about his good friend, John Lennon, and why he's not going to get get out anymore. And he's going to just stay in the Dakota and not do any more music. And I wish him well and so forth. And then he says to me, but I, I, I'm going to get him out. I'm going to get him out of Dakota. Uh, and that was, of course, the famous concert that Carrie went to. Right. That I did not go see. Uh, I believe Thanksgiving. Yeah. Thanksgiving 74, when uh, whatever gets you through the night turned out to be a number one hit. And uh, Elton John was involved in this lousy sergeant. Was, there was uh, some kind of Beatles movie. The Peter Frampton was in it. Yeah. Right. The Sergeant Pepper's yeah. only heard yeah. bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Elton did Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. So it was the perfect storm. And I got to, and that was the last time John Lennon ever played in right. front of an audience. And that was 1974. Oh, wow. Yeah, so. that's right. And then decades later, I'm sitting in Sean Lennon's house and I'm asking Sean about Elton John. And he told me that Elton John is his godfather. And uh, Sean made me wait about an hour uh, and I'm alone in his house. The publicist didn't do a very good job leaving a journalist alone in this guy's house. Yeah. Anyway, I noticed the turntable and I ooh, wonder what album Sean Lennon has on his turntable. And I went over and I looked at it and it was Tumbleweed Connection by Elton John. And he he was he was really cool and, and really uh, interesting and sophisticated and articulate and funny. And uh, I loved my time with Sean. I had to ask him about uh 
beautiful boy. Is that it? Where at the yes. end he goes, good night, Sean. Good night. Uh, and I asked him, well, how do you feel when you hear that song now? Uh, and, and his answer was interesting. It's like it, it, he doesn't feel anything. He thinks of what he could have done better in the song. That's all he said. He, he hears a chord that wasn't quite right. Uh, but yeah, yeah, Sean was great. Well, speaking of music, you know, we talk a lot. There's a, there's a lot of music in Last Stop Penn Station. There is. Uh, Mike G is, you know, last week when we were talking with Dave LaGreca, mm -hmm. you asked, and Dave was talking about his brother and you speaking about your brother sort yeah. of turning you on to, you know, they're a few years older. Live shows. Yeah. Mike was that person for me. Uh, hey, Mike was the first one in like 1967 or eight. He said, hey, there's this new thing. I go, what? FM radio. <laughs> I'm like, what's that? He goes, well, I, I'm not sure, but it's these higher frequencies, but they have really good stations. And so I started listening to, you know, New York freeform rock, WNEW FM, oh, yeah. WOR FM at the time was all rock. And uh, so the point being is Mike, you know, Mike laid the groundwork for, uh, a lot of the music that I love and he being a few years older than me, um, I wasn't of age to ever make it to the Fillmore. Mm -hmm. I would have had to be like, you know, 12, but Mike was of age oh, Wow! to uh, go, to, you know, all these amazing shows. Uh, let's talk about the Fillmore a little. I was, I was thinking about this. Would you guys buy tickets in advance? Yes. We would buy tickets after the show that we had just seen. And we would go to the box office and get our tickets for the next show, right then and there. You're talking about the same night or the next week? Uh, whether it was the next month, whether it was in a couple of weeks, after we thrilled to some show at the Fillmore, before we left, we would buy tickets right there for our next show. Did you uh, encounter, well, you must have encountered groups that you had no idea who they were that might have went on to be megastars. Any instance? I'm trying to think. I remember the Fillmore had a thing for having outrageously diametrically opposed shows. Mm -hmm. uh, Linda Ronstadt, the Woody Herman Big Band, and yeah. Pink Floyd, same night. Oh, geez. Yeah, things like that. Just fabulous. Uh, Ten years after was one of our big ones. Uh, we would always sit way up in the cheap seats. It was a small theater, so you could see fine and hear fine. And the light show looked actually better from all the way up there. The Joshua light show always blew our minds. Of course, I actually come to think of it, our minds were blown before we even stepped through the door. But that's okay. <laughs> Uh, it was it was great. Uh, Ten years after, I remember being uh, we got in the first or second row by the stage because we wanted to get really close to Alvin Lee. We loved Alvin Lee so much. And that particular 10 years after show, we were tripping, which we usually were. And uh, and, and Alvin Lee's hair, he, he looked like a lion. I'll never forget that lion mane of hair. And he was the fastest guitarist out of all of them. I'll still say that today. Nobody played as fast as as uh, Alvin Lee. We loved Alvin Lee. Did you see him before or after Woodstock? Were they kind before. of unknown? Before, wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. I knew who he was when he when he played Woodstock. Uh, but there were other artists, you know, where the, the Allman Brothers played that famous set that resulted in that famous album live at the Fillmore, but the night before that, uh, we saw them and it was a first date. And that show, it was the late show. They had two shows at the Fillmore, 8.30 and, and like 11. And that show, that late show didn't get out. I mean, I remember leaving that show in a brilliant, bright, blinding sunshine. Wow. It was the next morning and they had played and played and played. And then I had to drive this girl back to West Orange, New Jersey. Her father was waiting up for us. Uh, I never did anything with her, but but you couldn't convince him of that. 
<laughs> they must have finished with a two-hour version of Whipping Post. <laughs> very, very well. <laughs> this girl, who's now a sex therapist, tells me that I took her to see The Doors in Asbury Park. I have no recollection of that whatsoever. <laughs> Yet she swears I took her to see The Doors. Now, I saw The Doors at the Feld Forum. Oh. Adjacent to the garden, right? And 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 that was the thing about seeing the doors is that you you never knew what was going to happen. Mm. And the doors, you know, Jim Morrison was the type of cat. He was almost scary. You, you didn't know what was going to happen. The only lead singer that got even close to that sense of unexpected craziness was the first tour promoting Appetite for Destruction was Axl Rose. He hearkened back to that Jim Morrison aesthetic. Of you, you didn't know what was going to happen with this guy, but then they turned to shit real fast on their second <laughs> forever one. Well, they they had a huge they had a huge climb. I mean, they they played the Airport Road Club in Allentown, which couldn't have sat more than two hundred fifty people on that tour, and then they were in arenas two months later. I, I can't imagine what kind of success that would <laughs> that would do to you. Mike. Were, were were you at the very first Madison Square? You know, I read this book recently. It wasn't the uh, Bill Graham. Uh, autobiography, but it was about the history, an overview of the history of both Fillmore's East and West. And they, in the book, they talk, you know, Bill Graham, who eventually became an arena concert promoter, declared the downfall of both Fillmore's to be the, you know, uh, arena rock. And I think the first show at the Garden, and I think you were there, was Blind Faith. I I don't remember. Okay. A lot of things I don't remember, but I can tell you when Bill Graham got the idea and realized that he's going to have to close down both Fillmore's because he saw the future. He's sitting on the stage at Woodstock in 69, and he realized that his brand of 3,500 seaters, 2,500 seaters, however, was going to be a thing of the past. He realized that that day, Sunday afternoon at Woodstock, that he's going to close. Fillmore closed. Fillmore East closed within ten months. Wow! Uh, and then he said, then he did the biggest tours in rock and roll history. Right. Zeppelin, Rolling Stones. I mean, Bill Graham was was the greatest. Did you see Zeppelin at the uh, Fillmore? Didn't see Zeppelin at the Fillmore. I saw him at Madison Square Garden, and I didn't like him. And and interestingly enough, neither did you. You yeah. saw Led Zeppelin twice, and you didn't like him either I went time. Back. I thought I made a mistake. I was only sixteen, <laughs> and the, the next and the next month was the Tull show, and all I knew of Tull was Aqualung. But I went, you know, uh, I didn't want to go because I was it was at the Garden. I'm like, it's not going to be any good. Led Zeppelin was at the Garden. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't sound like the but Tull did sound like the record. And uh, I went back to see Zeppelin, I think, in 77. And I had the same experience. But yeah, I, for some reason, they just did. They just were too loud, too heavy. I reviewed that show. I was already a journalist by the time I seen him at the garden. And I, I likened them to a big clotting dinosaur. You know, whose foots are like this, and you can't. It was indistinguishable. But Tull always had a penchant for perfect sound, whether it was on CD or whether it was live. I'll never forget when. Uh, 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 what's the one with skating away on the thin ice of a new day? What child? War child came out. Carrie bought it the day it came out, and he ran over to my house and we listened to it together for the first time and we freaked out at the detail the troubles you know that it, it was just fabulous what was the reaction as a journalist when things would sort of branch off from rock because you talked about fm but shortly thereafter you'd have glam rock you know t-rex david bowie uh new york dolls even into into the punk, into the pop punk that was had the rock and roll roots, but were were different. How did you cover that as a journalist? And you know, was it difficult to cover something that wasn't as mainstream? Was there any pressure as a journalist to stick to the big stuff, the big hits like Led Zeppelin or Elton John or or that type of act? By the time punk came around, by the time glam came around, I had a staff. Mm -hmm. And and my staff knew a lot more than me. I was stuck in an Allman Brothers, Elvis, uh, Canned Heat, Blues Rock 
kind of bag and I never really left it. But then I started discovering other bands through my writers. One writer would tell me, hey, there's this unsigned band playing CBGBs. They're called The Police. Can I go Can I go review them? I said, fine, okay. So we had like one of the first reviews of The Police in the country at the Aquarian, plus other things. Uh, and I wound up though loving David Bowie and loving the new, except when I was asked to sing those songs. I remember being in a band and they wanted me to do it. I'd been in bands my whole life since high school singing and, and, they, and I had to sing Suffragette City. Besides the fact that there were a thousand words in the song, uh, <laughs> it, it, it was too high for me. Give me some Almond Brothers, you know? <laughs> Give me some blues. I used to love to sing John Lee Hooker's Sugar Mama, Sugar Mama. Uh, I can't be singing no, no Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and neither can Robert Plant anymore because they've offered him billions to, to rejoin. <laughs> well, Mike's musical taste is very diverse. Mm -hmm. Going back, you know, jazz, blues, classical. And uh, were you able to uh, take the leap of faith into the punk new wave era? Mm -hmm. I like the Ramones because how, how how do you not like beat on the brat with a baseball bat? What a great song. And so I like the Ramones. I thought the Sex Pistols were pure garbage. Uh, I, I, certain ones, I like the Clash. You got to like the Clash. Uh, you know, they, they utilized some reggae in, in the Clash. Uh, I liked the Jam. They were good. Paul yeah. Weller and company. Um, so, yeah, you know, I changed with the times, but but around... Eight, late in the late eighties and and in the nineties, ain't no rock bands that I liked. I never I never understood why people like U two, for instance, or Pearl Jam or the Dave Matthews Band. I try. I would say to myself, "Ooh, I know this is good. I'm supposed to like this." And I would come home from New York City on the bus and have it on my headphones and go, "Ugh, I, I don't get it." So that's when my aptitude for rock atrophied. And my adventurism in music enlarged to these genres that Carrie's talking about. I became a huge jazz fan, a country fan, folk music, Latin, gospel, blues, soul, funk. You know, and I sort of left rock behind. And now I still go back to the tried and true favorites when it comes to rock. I mean, the last few rock bands, I, I, I love Cheap Trick, uh, um, The Cars, I love. Um, but there's nobody. Los Lobos, I love. I, I suppose I could rattle off a bunch of them, but mostly I like the kinks, you know, uh, the, the earlier ones. Did MTV, uh, going to take you through through Carrie's questions here with, with pop and punk and yeah. pop punk, uh, did MTV make it more accessible to, to your line of work or did that accelerate the burnout <laughs> that you felt of some of these groups you didn't like so much? Never watched it. Never watched it. Uh, I had my my staff. We we even had a column, uh, music on video or whatever it was called. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, it, it was an ancillary thing. It never dented my consciousness at all. Interesting. Yeah, there's there's a lot of groups. Even even Toll hopped in the video the video game at one point, right? They, yeah, well, play. you had to. <laughs> you had to in the eighties. Uh, if you were putting out a new album. You put out a video, so yeah, and there was that there was that wave, Mike. I'm sure you remember uh, whether it was the Dead with uh, Touch of Grey, whether it's the Beach Boys with Kokomo. Uh, there was that wave right from '84 to '88 where the, all those groups that were on Woodstock had one more hit, <laughs> and it was it was weird. Yeah. The listeners can't see it. You were giving the stink <laughs> nose to the Grateful Dead. Yeah, the, great, I, I, the Grateful Dead is probably the worst band in history. Uh, they had, they to their credit, they had two of the greatest albums in American rock history, forerunners of the Americana movement. That's now mm -hmm. American Beauty and Working Man's Dead. And those two albums are pristine and they're still on my lifelong ro rotation. But at Woodstock, they were awful. And I remember yelling at them, get off the stage. You suck. And, and they did <laughs> they did that song by the Bobby Blue Bland Blues Band, Turn On Your Love Light. 
but they did it for 45 minutes. And they weren't funky. They weren't soulful. They were just doodling for 45 minutes. And and unbeknownst to me, Creedence Clearwater Revival was to go on next. They're backstage and they're, they're saying to themselves, what are these guys doing? These guys are selfish. And they knew the dead. They're from, they're both from San Francisco. And, and yeah, they were awful. And then another time, and Carrie might've been with me, uh, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Stadium in Washington, DC with the I dead, there. The, the band and the Allman Brothers. And the, and the band and the Allman Brothers were unbelievable. And I had suffered through that, that Grateful Dead. Maybe <laughs> you need to be chirping to like the Grateful Dead. Uh, <laughs> the thing about, and Carrie will tell you, Back then, we always thought that a band was really wonderful if they sounded like the record. That was the big thing. At Woodstock, when the band came on, even in that cavernous sheep meadow field, they sounded perfect. The three-part harmonies of the band. And then, like never before, no other band ever switched instruments after every song. The drummer would come out and play the banjo. The guitarist would go behind the drums. The, the organ player would play an accordion. I mean, I'd never forget the band. That was And Carrie's, Carrie's one of the favorites, too. Yeah, and it's funny that the not only the performance of the band at Woodstock is not on the uh, video, video or yeah. the record. Mm -hmm. Neither is the Dead, mm -hmm. uh, and there's some other acts. Yeah, CCR's not on there either. Right, CCR's not on there. But um, yeah, um, I've always the band is a go-to for me. Oh yeah, uh, I mean of oh, all yeah. time. George Harrison wanted to quit the Beatles and join the band. He had left. So did the Van, fighting. Van Morrison came over there too. They wanted Van Morrison. He saw what they were doing up in Woodstock, New York, where the, the atmosphere was easygoing and they were making music and the vibe was so cool. And then he went back to England and the Beatles were hating each other and, <laughs> and it was fraught with tension. He wanted to join the band. But then you got to realize. The band, as long as they were, and how great every album were, they really had only two, like The Grateful Dead, they only had two wonderful records. And Levon would be the first to tell you. Uh, and he would go even further. And he would say they're only good two records of the first two, the band and music from Big Pink. After that, I remember when that album with Carnival came out, maybe that was the name of it, that third album. Stage Fright. What is it called? Stage Fright. That third album. And I remember saying this, this is like disappointing. I've learned to love it through the years as I learned to love all the ones that Robbie Robertson wasn't even on, uh, like Moondog Matinee or Jericho or any one of the number. But those first two albums, masterpieces. And I think a lot of it has to do, you know what? You were there when they did Rock of Ages. Yeah, at the Academy at the, of Music. At the Academy of Music, oh, the wow. Palladium. In 71, the band did Rock of Ages, with, bringing in a horn section, the, basically the same horn section that was part of the Johnny Carson oh. <laughs> Tonight. Seriously, was part of the also, Tonight. Also, Taj Mahal used that horn section with oh, okay. Howard Johnson on tuba and, and some of these other guys. The Breckman Brothers, I think, might have been in there. But yeah, the way the band used horns. Well, was that rock, well Mike, that when that Rock of Ages album came out, which was a live album. Mm -hmm. And uh, I listened to it all, you know, I, I, when we sit out by the pool, I'll always put it on. It just never, it, it just worked. So that uh, th their legacy was kept alive through their live performances. Good point. Sort of, sort of like Tall's was. Yeah, good point. No doubt about it. Well, Toll became, became a laughing stock, and it wasn't even their fault when they were awarded the best heavy metal album <laughs> for Crest of a Knave. And then when they asked the Grammy guy, he, he he mentioned that, oh, it's supposed to be best hard rock slash heavy metal album, but it's not even hard rock. <laughs> now, now, it's a great record. I love Crest of a Knave. But I mean, it was sort it, of a lifetime it, achievement award by the Grammys to give to guess. It was better than giving it to ACDC. <laughs> it's not like it got really bent out of shape. They got they it the next year. <laughs> they? they got it the next year. That's all right. Well, let's let's go back to Woodstock. Your book is 50 Years Back to the Farm. And you were there, Mike. 
you were at Yasker's farm and it, take me back. How early did you get there? We've all seen the, the news coverage of the cars piling up and the, and the mud and this and that, and more people than expected and counterfeit tickets. That's the, the rumors and this and that. How'd you get your tickets? how do you know it was happening? How early did you show up and walk us through some of your uh, more fond experiences there? I worked at Concord Insurance downtown Newark, and we had a, a, a FM radio on all day, and we heard the commercials. And we're thinking, oh, my God, all our favorite bands in one weekend at one place? We got to go. So we went to the last straw, a head shop in Bloomfield, New Jersey, and we bought tickets, $17.50 for all three days. Wow. And uh, we went Thursday. The show started Friday. We went Thursday. In the morning, my mom packed about 16 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and we had, uh, 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 there was no bottled water back then. We had canteens filled with water. We had, you know, uh, uh, clothing and, and pot and uh, <laughs> soap and toothpaste and toothbrushes. We, we, had, we were prepared. So we had a tent. We had sleeping bags. We, we, we did it right. And we went up there Thursday morning. And uh, we got to that little road, uh, 17B, I believe, that highway leading into uh, Bethel, and it just stopped dead. And we wound up playing a, a game of Monopoly on the roof of the car in the hot sun. Uh, I recently reconnected with the guy that I went to Woodstock with. They asked him if we ever finished that game of Monopoly. He didn't remember. But then we, we, we continued onward, crawling, inching towards the place. And the security, the word from really security people, these guys showed us where to park. So we parked and, and, and my friend Neil goes, well, we better take all our stuff with us. I go, ah, don't worry about it. We'll come back. We'll get the stuff. Let me just roll a quick joint and we'll, and we'll go. And then we there and we didn't know where the stage was like where where's Woodstock and so we hitched a ride uh, with, with this Volkswagen bug there was 17 hippies already in the bug when they yeah. stopped for us well, how could it go anywhere and he, he was down the hill the parking lot I realize now because 50 years later I went back to the site there's a wonderful museum on that site and uh I didn't realize that the parking lot was right right up the hill from the stage we were forced wow. Anyway, so he said, you can't get in the car, but stand on the, on the bumper thing, on the, the running board, and yeah. hold on like this, and we'll, we'll head down. And so we did. And that bug tore down that hill. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> and and, and they, they, I fell off the, the, the thing on the bottom, dusted myself off, and I we see the stage the night before. They're still working on the stage the night before the concert. And I thought, oh man, I gotta smoke a joint. Well, oh my God, where should I smoke a joint? I can't be seen smoking a joint. I didn't know. Nobody knew what we, what we were heading into. So I went in the woods. I surreptitiously smoked the joint uh, and we got a spot, boy. Who did we get a spot? Right there, there it was. Wow. And uh, we had a great time that night. We fell asleep and uh, I woke up and I stood up and I looked behind me and I freaked out. A vista of humanity behind me like I've never seen before in my life. Wow. I've never been in a place with that many people in my life. And I roused Neil who was still sleeping. I said, look, look, uh, it's supposed to start at nine in the morning. We were ready. And everyone started crowding around us and uh, there was no no music at nine in the morning or 10 or 11 or 12 or one or two or three or four. Five o'clock in the afternoon, they first started the show. Eight hour wait. And wow. no artist, no artist wanted to be the first one because of the opening. Richie Havens. Right. And it's interesting that his was the one of the most iconic sets of everybody. And it was the very first one. And he was brilliant. Now, we knew Richie Havens. He was that black folk singer that opened up for John Lee Hooker in, at the Cafe Wah. We, we had seen him a lot of times. We didn't think it was any great shakes. But, man, was he great. And they were, they were, people were scared to go on first. Tim Harden, who wrote, uh, 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 if I were a carpenter and the lady came from Baltimore and all these beautiful songs. And I loved Tim Harden. And uh, he was uh, so stoned out on heroin that he was lying underneath the stage immobile. He couldn't wow. perform first. And the other people wouldn't go. They just wouldn't go on. 
So Richie Havens. Yep. Well, what, um, I know this is all chronicled in the book, but so we're talking, the, the festival starts Friday at five. Correct. When did those crazy rainstorms come? Well, it rained every day of Woodstock, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it had rained 17 of the 21 days previous to Woodstock. Sullivan County set the record for rain that August. (laughs) But the rain, for instance, during beautiful Melanie's set, where she sang the song Beautiful People, and, and she saw the people lighting up candles uh, out there, who would bring candles to Woodstock? That's the only thing I always did. There was no cell phones. There, what were they lighting? Matches? Uh, but she saw it, she saw it, and it was a beautiful moment. Uh, it rained lightly, and I liked the rain. It was fine. It was warm. And then Saturday, when the rain came, it was fine. It was warm. What you're asking about is the horrific monsoon that tore through the place on Sunday. And it just happened to occur when the acid that I took was starting to come on. And Neil left to go find a phone booth to call our moms and tell them we were all right. So I was alone. And then after Joe Cocker said, I thrilled to Joe Cocker. I mean, that may be the best set of Woodstock. I thrilled to Joe Cocker, tripping, uh, having so much fun. Uh, but at the sky darkened, it was so dark. After Joe Cocker said, you can see it in the movie, they're all pointing to the sky. Uh, and then the, the, the announcement came, hey, listen, we're, we're going to take a break. We got to cover the instruments. Hang tight. Hold on to your neighbor. Do whatever you got to do. Uh, be an hour or two. That was four hours. Wow. And there was no music. And that's when I first developed the theory that I have for the rest of my life, that as long as the music is playing, everything will be all right. Because after the music came back and I was freezing, and I was wet and I was hungry and thirsty and I had to go to the bathroom. And my friend Neil stayed straight the entire time. And every new band that came on, he would go, oh, no, another band. Can we go home? And I'm tripping. There's no way I'm going to go home. The people, the band, Johnny Winter, uh, these people, I had to go. We, we stuck it out. We stuck it out uh, until about two o'clock in the morning when they introduced Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Now, we had loved their debut album, Child is Father to the Man, with Al Cooper. Man, that's a great album, and it stands up today. But there was no Al Cooper. They kicked his ass out of his own band. Yeah. And here's this new guy. What the hell is his name? The guy uh, Clayton Thomas. Oh, the stupid David Clayton Thomas. Uh, he comes on, and he sings that horrible stupid spinning wheel song and me and me and neil looked at each other goodbye and 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 neil goes but but what about Jimi hendrix i said fuck Jimi hendrix we got to get out of here did you make it for santana oh yeah santana uh, was an unknown act the only reason and i learned this from your book uh the only reason they got on the bill was because uh the the promoter's of Woodstock wanted the dead and they had to do that through Bill Graham, but Bill Graham would only give them the dead. If you try to, I got this new hot act from San Francisco and boy was Bill Graham, right? So I'm yeah, this you probably didn't know Santana or didn't correct. Oh. I was one of the few people at Woodstock that knew all about Santana. Now, mind you, their debut album hadn't even been released yet. Right. But I knew them because I had gone to the Singer Bowl on the site of the old World's Fair where the big universe, not universe, the um, Unis- Unisphere. The Unisphere was. And I saw they opened up for a band called Pacific Gas and Electric. Okay. And the headliner was the Buddy Miles Express. And I had loved Buddy Miles and Electric Flag with Michael Bloomfield. And so we went to that show and we were turned on to Santana and Santana just blew us away a week prior to Woodstock. Wow. So I knew all about it. As a matter of fact, I said to Neil, I saw this band last week. I'm going to go buy a hot dog. And, and I, I, I went around and... <laughs> 
I tried to find hot dog stand. Oh, <laughs> here come the hot dog man. <laughs> I stick out. And that's when that's when I found out the guy goes, We're, we we run out of hot dogs. Sorry. I go, fine. Well, where's where's the next stand? He goes, No, you don't understand. There's no more food. Nobody has any food. Oh, well, can, can I get a soda? Nobody has any soda. Oh, okay. Well, I, I got to go to the bathroom. Where's the nearest bathroom? Oh, the bathrooms are, they're not working. And that's when I realized, uh-oh. And, and the thing about the thing about Woodstock, and I got to say it, uh, is that you, you can't get 500,000 people together with not enough food, not enough water, not enough bathrooms, the horrible conditions, the monsoon, not one reported instance of violence, not one. And uh, we were the peace and love generation, right? We proved it on those four days. Everyone helped each other. It's a, it's a cliche, and I know I sound cliche, but yeah, these people around me, they fed me, they kept me warm, they lit fire. Guys that you would be scared to meet on a dark street in Newark, uh, wound up being the nicest guys in the world and going into action. I was one of the guys that just stood there <laughs> looking around. I didn't help nobody. I, I was just so aghast at, at the surroundings. And it led me to become a music journalist because when I left Woodstock, all I did was tell people about it for weeks and weeks. And I'm still doing that. Listening to music and telling people about it at 70. Well, let's take a let's take an inside peek at your book. Is there any? I know there's a couple acts that were originally booked or approached to be in Woodstock that did not end up making the gig for one reason or another. Out of out of that pool, is there one group that could have been the cherry on top of what would have been? You know, uh, there were so many. So, I mean, the Doors were asked to play Woodstock. Morrison was afraid of being assassinated. Oh, uh, he said no. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel were supposed to play Woodstock. It was during their tour, but they hated each other so much that they couldn't stand to do one more show. Oh. Jethro Tull was supposed to be at Woodstock, but when he learned that it was a bunch of naked hippies doing drugs, he said, I ain't doing that. <laughs> the Tommy James and the Shondells was supposed wow. to be at Woodstock, but he was in Hawaii at Diamond Head, the most beautiful place on earth. Yeah. And he gets a call from his agent saying some pig farmer in upstate New York wants you to do a rock festival. And Tommy James says, yeah, right. <laughs> and he said, no. And there were other there were other art, plenty of other artists. The, 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 the faces were supposed to. Rod Stewart had gone solo and uh, that messed up that there were other acts. So many acts that were supposed to play with stop. I saw an interesting documentary last night and the only person that possibly might know about this. One of the few people would be you. And it's a documentary. It's on Hulu. Our producer and our good friend, AJ, turn, turned us on to it. Uh, did it have a title, AJ? Summer of Soul. Summer of Soul. Mike, there was a festival. It was in Harlem. And there was a small park like on a hundred, not Central Park, like on 115th Street. Mm. I, I've never heard the name of this. This must have been a shady. And they ran a festival, um, what, every weekend? Yeah. Like every weekend during the day, including Sly, including wow. Nina Simone, including Stevie Wonder. And... They've just recovered this footage 50 years later. Did you know anything about this, Harlem? Uh, here, here, here's an interesting thing about that. Why no one knows about Black Woodstock to this day. I'm a journalist from New York. I didn't know about it. Nobody knew about it. Why is this? Did they squelch it on purpose? Questlove found the tapes after 50 years, and he put together this documentary that's on Hulu called Summer of Soul with Gladys Knight and the Pips and Mahalia Jackson and Ray Barreto. So many artists, but it, but the thing, the difference between Black Woodstock and White Woodstock is, is Black Woodstock was filled with rage and politics. And they were they were they were so upset. Say what? Jesse Jackson was all over it. Yeah. Um, he was he was a baby face, sort of. 
Yep. I don't want to interrupt. No, that's fine. It, it was so filled with rage. They had asked him about man landing on the moon. Oh, yeah. And these black people were going, Whitey's going to the moon. Who cares? You know, feed the black kids. Nina right. Simone went on stage and, and told the 100,000 people that they should buy guns and kill white people. She said it right from the stage. You got to learn to kill and burn buildings. And you know what? I could understand black rage. And, and I can understand the, the sentiment behind that. No doubt. But I saw it. It was great. Oh, I'm glad you saw it. Well, there was my AJ and I went hog wild when right during the festival, like one of the during was the same time we landed on the moon, the Apollo oh, wow. mission. Yeah. And as Mike was just referring to, they were interviewing the, some of the fans who were like, you know, who gives a shit? Let's yeah. put the money into the community. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then all of a sudden on stage at the festival is the great mom's Mabley. What? Yes. <laughs> right. No and mom's Mabley, she goes, yeah, I hear men. So that man laying on the moon, some white man, I told him I'm getting off in Baltimore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So yeah. People, when it was happening, you weren't aware of it, though. I wasn't aware of it in the 70s, the 80s, or the 90s either, or when it was happening. It's like that other thing of Black history that was refused to be taught. 1921, Omaha, Nebraska, when these two white guys went to try to lynch a black person but couldn't find them. And instead they burned down the whole town. Black Wall Street, they had fabulous uh, restaurants and lawyers and, and churches. And it was a whole unbelievable society that blacks had in Omaha, Nebraska, burnt to the ground. Never, and, and history books omitted it. Yeah, I, I believe you're talking about Tulsa, Mike. Tulsa. Yeah. Right. It, it, That's it. I had a, I had very progressive history teachers who did their best to, to educate about those sort of things. That was never taught to me in, in high school. It was never part of the curriculum. Yeah, I don't, yeah. Think, I don't think it's at their fault. It's one of the things that I think we, with a wink and a nudge, unfortunately, have pushed out of, of history, and which... It needs to come back. And I'm, I'm glad that we're getting some more awareness around, around those things. Right. Mike was brought up in a very racially mach, uh, mixed community. He was, in, he was on the border of Newark with uh, his mom, my Aunt Reba, Uncle Gunny. All right. Yeah. And Debbie. And it was, a, it was, a, it was, it used to be a Jewish neighborhood. But it was at the very, this is in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, I mean, when you were going to Week Wake High School, what was the percentage of uh, black, white uh, racial split? It was all black. Uh, it's 64 to 68. It had been all Jewish all through the 40s and 50s. And it was run by a guy named Longy Zwilman, the boss in Newark. And uh, he used to buy turkeys for the poor Jews on Thanksgiving. My mother had a big crush on him. He was a real handsome guy. <laughs> uh, but he was, a, he was a gangster. And uh, I was warned when I finished the eighth grade in Maple Avenue School. I, and I told people, I'm going to Week Lake High School. They go, oh, man, Week Lake High School. You're, oh, man, you better watch out. And, and indeed, I had a guy that uh, every time I saw him in the hall, uh, I had to give him a quarter. Uh, I must have given him a thousand quarters over the four years that I went there. And it came a point, he didn't even have to ask me. If I saw him from across the hall, I would go up to him and I would give him the, I would give him the quarter. And if it wasn't for the great George Davis, who was on the football team, another black guy who became my protector, uh, I don't know what would have happened to me, but George Davis was interesting in that his head was shaped like a football. Yeah. He had a point in the front and they had a point, he had a point in the back. They had to make a special helmet for him. Oh my and, God. And, yeah. And, and he, he was, he was my friend. That's good. Did that, you know, Howard Stern talks a lot about how he went to a similar makeup of a high school in, in Long Island and it helped him broaden his horizons with music. Was there any, what was the positive cultural impact of that? I mean, obviously you're going to folks that, it didn't look like you that had different tastes that you talked about black Woodstock. Did you get exposed to any of the, any of the music faster or quicker or any of the deeper cuts that way? 
Oh, no doubt about it. As a matter of fact, I had a band in high school called the Rock Garden, and I, I looked at our set list. And for a bunch of white Jewish guys, we played Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, Sam and Dave. We played uh, we played The Temptations. We played The Four Tops. The Rock Garden played all this black music. Mitch Ryder, The Detroit Wheels was big, even though the guy, he was white. The Righteous Brothers. Uh, we played a lot of soul music. And I think that's because of that that era. I remember, I even remember where I was when Otis Redding's plane went down. Oh. I was at the Y playing knock hockey. And, and over the radio, Otis Redding died today. Well, I had never heard Otis Redding. But after he died, I checked him out. And he's now my favorite soul singer of all time. Yeah, it's funny how that, that works out. I've discovered a, a few artists like that as well. Like what? Including Carrie's favorite, Nipsey Hussle, who's a rapper that recently passed away. I, I've never even heard of him. He's Nipsey good. Russell's a comedian. No, Nipsey Hussle. Oh, Nipsey Hussle. <laughs> Nipsey Hussle. <laughs> He's good, man. But I didn't know about him. Honest to God's truth, until he, he passed away. And then they get publicity. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate for, that they passed away. But suddenly he's a bigger star now than he ever was when he was living. It's It's wild how that can work. Well, one of the things that they let us do that they don't do anymore, when Public Enemy was big, mm -hmm. uh, the rap band, mm -hmm. uh, they played Attica, the prison. And some enterprising publicist thought it would be cool to take a bunch of us journalists to Attica inside. And we went. And we were told you can talk to the person. I mean, we were right in Gen Pop. I mean, we were right there with, with the prisoners. And they said, you can talk to the prisoners. That's fine. The one thing you can't ask, don't ask them why they're in there, what they did. Just don't do that. And so we're watching the show. And, and then the public enemy, the guy, remember the guy with the big clock around yeah, his uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Flavor Flav, right. He starts going on this anti-Semitic rap about how the Jews own the media and the Jews own this, and, and, the, and the, the prisoners are starting to go, yeah, fuck them Jews. And oh, I'm like standing there, I'm like looking around, oh shit. And, and I also remember it was really hot. It was so hot in Attica that I was sort of relieved when we went and I got back to Port Authority and I'm drenched in sweat and I got online to go on the bus and I see a guy I haven't seen in like a couple of years and he goes, Greenblatt, where are you back? I go, I just got out of Attica, man. And he's like, oh shit. But yeah, I'll never forget that. So, you know, black music, it was always a part of, of, of the, of our experience. No doubt. Awesome. And Talking about experiences, we'll we'll tie it up here. We'll put a bow on things. Carrie's experiences are coming your way in print, hopefully soon. I know we've been pushing Carrie along, and you've been great at editing and nudging folks along. Carrie's told me there's interviews from Adam Cole, from Kevin Owens, from the Young Bucks, from you name it. If they've been Steve Carino, Kevin Steen, uh, Spanky, uh, Jay Lethal, the Briscoes, yeah. Joe Cop. Gary Juster, uh, so on, so on, uh, Mick Foley, uh, so on and so forth. Yeah, they all they all lined up to be part of this book because of their love for Carrie. And I got to say that this man that you're sitting next to has lived five lives. <laughs> I mean, there's there's nobody. And I always I told we have a mutual friend, Palermo, and we and me and Palermo were always saying, Did you ever meet anybody like Carrie? And I'm going, No. <laughs> uh, uh, because this guy uh, with the music and this and that, and he flouts tradition and he flouts legalities. <laughs> and and his the book his book, and, and he even said to me, he even said to me the other night, man, ah. I don't know if I'm comfortable with, with all these stories. You've got to be, maybe we should tone it down a little bit. And I'm going, yeah, but that's the selling point. This guy did it all. He's drug deals, uh, scalping tickets, uh, cheating families down in New Orleans. We have these tickets and these, these poor families want to go see this college football game. And he sells them the bogus tickets and, and runs away real fast. Dude, true. <laughs> he, he was he was using back then he was on drugs i mean this guy how he how could he even be alive today uh it's amazing so that's why this book a lot of people are gonna like this book but i gotta convince him to keep keep a lot of those stories in there that don't make him look too good but i'm thinking the concept of the anti-hero 
You know, he could be the, I could see him doing these talk shows, promoting the book on a book tour and, yeah. and being the anti-hero. And as far as the gay stuff, I mean, this is 2021, man. That, that, that's hip. This is good. This is another selling point. So I'm all in favor of more cock in the book, yeah. not less. That's the, that's the under, what do they got? The subtitle, Last Stop Pensation, More Cock. I've been working on Carrie with that also to get that right under the... <laughs> Mike's Mike's a married man, actually twice. But that's, hey, right. that's <laughs> true. But uh, he was old enough that, besides being able to go to the Fillmore, you know, going into New York City, it was right at the when Mike was nineteen and twenty. It was right when the uh, X-rated boom came out, mm-hmm. and yeah. the, you didn't have the billboards with deep throat, you know, <laughs> before that. But all of a sudden, Mike, one day, all of 42nd Street and 8th Avenue is triple X. The, hooker, the hookers were there before that, but they were lined up. Did you see any of that stuff? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I came out of work. I came out of work. I went right into Port Authority, right back home. <laughs> that eliminates about 30 more of our follow-up questions. So you're all, you're getting off easy this time, Mike. <laughs> That's all right. Oh, well, Mike, it's been a pleasure having you. We really look forward to reading Last Stop Penn Station, the book, which we've been nudging Carrie along. I'm thankful to you because this is something that I know Carrie has really wanted to do over the years. Carrie, Carrie and I met in 2013, uh, and I think he started talking about maybe writing a book in 2015. So for at least six years, he's wanted to do this. And I'm glad that, you know, you've been here, somebody with your credentials to help guide him along, help edit and and bring his story to life. Well, I got to tell you, we leave no stone unturned. <laughs> and we're going to bring Mike back Absolutely. in a couple of weeks because we didn't even touch the word wrestling. That's right. <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. From Puerto Rico to Ring of Honor. I mean, we WWF. Don't wait, WWWF, yeah. whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got to talk about wrestling. Here's the man that turned me on to wrestling. There you go. We'll, so we'll, we'll we'll get into some of that, some some more music stuff. There, there's uh, Mike's uh, a wealth of stories and uh, true stories. Yeah, and it's good stuff. Awesome. We appreciate you doing this with us, Mike. My honor. So. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Mike G, it's Mike Greenblatt, uh, back to Yasger's farm. Mm-hmm. Always good with the anniversary of Woodstock coming up every year. 51 coming up. 51 or 52? 52. Oh, wow. Okay. 52. That's right. Available on Amazon. And uh, thanks for coming on Last Stop Penn Station, my man. Listening to Last Stop Penn Station podcast. Rate, review, like, subscribe, and share on your favorite platform. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at laststoppennstation.com.